Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I sure did. Stacy and I were in the North Carolina mountains with my brother and his wife, my other brother and his wife and their two kids and our two kids and the dog Colonel. And we had a, a lot of fun outdoors, hiking and playing golf, sneaking in the last round of the season, at least up in the North Carolina anyway, where it was pretty chilly. So we had fires burning all weekend. We had turkey and pie and lots of wine flowing. Great times for which I am very grateful and hope you did too. Hope you got a lot of that hygge, hygge. Remember the Danish people, the hygge? That's what we had. Lots of that this weekend. Hey, I want to let you know that this week's episode is brought to you by Stacy's company. That's my wife's company. So it's important to me too. Sidecar, which is the purveyor of stylish hands-free travel accessories. They make great holiday gifts for yourself or for the stylish man or woman in your life. Click on the link in the show notes or go to sidecarlove.com. Then use code CRAZY20 to get 20% off your order of $75 or more. That's right, sidecarlove.com. Or click on the link in the show notes. All right, let's talk about this week's episode. I got a question for you. Do you ever feel stuck in life? As if, you know, maybe you're in the wrong place or you're in the right place but doing the wrong things or... Like you can't seem to make any progress. The things you want to get off the ground just won't fly. And Or what do you do when you find yourself at a crossroads? It happens. And it doesn't stop happening just because you're in middle age. Well, today I speak to innovation expert Merrick First about how seeing ourselves and the world more clearly can tell us how to move forward when the way isn't clear. Now, Merrick is a distinguished professor at Georgia Tech and an expert on deliberate innovation. And while his list of academic and commercial accomplishments are longer than your arm, today we're going to put those immense analytical skills to work to determine the questions we all should ask ourselves when we're not sure about which way to go. In today's conversation, we discuss what should you do when you feel stuck, how blind spots keep us stuck, and how to find out what our blind spots are, the importance of both radical candor and unconditional positive regard, and most importantly, how Merrick helped to inspire the Crazy Money podcast. That's right. Unbeknownst to him, he played a critical role in helping me get unstuck and figuring out what to do after I left Facebook and which passion to follow based on things I couldn't stop thinking about. Merrick First is a distinguished professor at Georgia Tech, formerly a professor at UC Berkeley and president of the International Computer Science Institute at Berkeley, Prior to that, he was a professor and associate dean in the School of Computer Science at Carnegie Mellon. Dr. First is known for seminal research in algorithms, complexity theory, and AI, and a whole bunch of other stuff. But again, today we're going to talk about the human side of innovation, and we're going to help you get unstuck. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Merrick First. I'm speaking to Merrick First, who is co-author of a new book called The Heart of Innovation, you're a distinguished professor, which explains the the cane, the top hat, it's and the, the gray, monocle. I'm pretty sure it's the gray hair you're noticing. <laughs> the distinguished professor at Georgia Tech and Center for Deliberate Innovation, as opposed to accidental innovation. Exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> so innovation is more than just stumbling across a product that people need. Don't answer that question. We're going to get there. Uh, was that a question? No. Okay. Tell me a little bit about uh, how long have you been when did you start teaching college? How'd you get into this? Teaching college. I teach into, students. I teach at colleges. How'd you get into this racket? It's of embarrassing. Teaching I'll tell students. you, I'll tell you, then people won't want to listen. They'll think I'm actually sitting here with a cane or something. Uh -huh. I've been doing it for a long time. So what was your question again? See, I'm forgetting How, we, already. You don't so, have to. Okay. So I'm you, teaching forever. So you, in your been first a, class, you taught punch card technology. Right. I aspired to have like a key punch or something. <laughs> I did actually use key punches, which is a very disturbing thing. Actually, I think mm -hmm. the first thing I ever programmed was like an IBM 29 key punch. And that thing you programmed by moving cords around. But mm -hmm. I'd rather you just remove this from this podcast because now it changes everybody's view of what's going on here. Yeah, so I've been teaching. I went to graduate school at Cornell a million years ago, studied the theory of computing, which is nothing like what I do anymore. Algorithms, complexity, so it's sort of like mathematics. And then I got my first job at Carnegie Mellon in a long time ago, previous century. Mm. Yeah. And how long have you been at Georgia Tech? Been here for actually 20 years. Came in 2003. 
And you wear many hats here. I do. Tell me about your hats. <laughs> someone told me is you that should, too personal that, that sounds no, very I like, personal no it just makes me think that it reminds me of someone once gave me advice which is you should never change jobs to one that requires you to wear a different set of clothes so I don't know hats that how you think of it so I've you're wearing scrubs <laughs> okay. sorry go ahead was I my wife was wearing scrubs when I got up this morning she got called in in the middle of the night last night for work well let's see I'm a, well I'm a professor so but a lot of what I spend my life doing right now is thinking about how to help people get unstuck, Mm -hmm. mostly in the context of innovation, startups, uh, large corporate innovations, also innovating in their life, like how do they become the thing that they're hoping to become? What does that even mean? I didn't know that I would end up there, but I got very interested a little bit more than a decade ago in helping startups be more successful. And then in retrospect, turns out if you're a startup, you've got a couple of people trying to make something that is a value and you don't have any value to start up. It's like a pure problem. Like how do you go from like a couple of people with an idea wishing that that people cared about them or that they were of value to build something. And then just working on that problem in that context led us to have a whole different way of thinking about innovation and how do you grow as a person? Anyway, I think that's what you were hoping we would talk about no, today. I and it's, it's, I'm I, hoping too. I think that's a perfect talking about how to get unstuck is I think very relevant application of your insights to individuals. But before we talk about getting unstuck, I want to talk about how you are related to the genesis of the podcast. Briefly tell me about what Flashpoint is. Right. So more than a decade ago, the university, Georgia Tech, decided that they were going to do more about innovation. And a terrific guy who was the executive vice president of research uh, named Steve Cross called me up and he said, I've got this bullet point in the strategic plan. I have to execute on it. It's to become more innovative. And he said, I know that you've done startups and done innovative things. Would you help? And I'm I'm not an idiot, so I said no, but eventually I said yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and a friend of mine and Ravi Belmkanda and I who Ravi's now the provost at Emory, he's in Atlanta too still. We ran this task force and the net of the task force was Every way that people go about doing innovation seems to lead to the same outcome, which is not much happens. I mean, you can have huge successes, like the thing, like what you've seen when you were at Yahoo, what you saw when you were at Facebook. You can have huge successes, but people are very unlikely to make that success happen deliberately. So I got interested in, like, why? And I had done a bunch of startups at that point, and some of them were successful, but a lot of them were not successful. I just got interested in why. And at the end of that task force, which we spent the years, and we kind of came back and said, okay, here's the deal. We checked everything. There's nothing that's really a technical problem. You could like technology mm-hmm. transfer better. You could raise money better. But those don't seem to really matter to be successful at this kind of innovation startups. So they said, well, then what do we do? And I said, well, the only thing I know to do is if your mindset is, is, is really a mindset problem, not a technical problem. Mm-hmm. Mindset problem is you're just not, we must not be thinking about it right. So how would you think about it differently? And I, what I know about innovation is you try experiments. And so I proposed that we try an experiment for a year. If it didn't work out, we'd bury it in the basement. The experiment that I suggested we try was at the time was just a straight-up copy Y Combinator, which was this very successful startup incubator, mm-hmm. which would take a few teams, try to give them some what was called entrepreneurial education and small investments and work with them for like three months. And none of that turned out to be quite right because it turns out people weren't actually doing entrepreneurial education. So then I had to find myself trying to figure out, well, what is entrepreneurial education? Mm-hmm. So maybe this is more of an answer than you wanted. Yes, it is. Okay. So, <laughs> so you can erase that part of the tape and everybody's, anyone's still listening, you should now listen to what Paul wanted me to say. Uh, okay. What did you want me to say? I wanted you to say that you created this startup incubator called Flashpoint. Oh yeah. And you can discuss the difference between, you can debate the difference okay. between an incubator and... I spent 10 years helping startups we worked with like 80 startups, hundreds of founders, large companies. We invested in them, and some of them are doing great. They're worth about $2 billion right now. That's awesome. Like a half a billion dollars came into them. should have invested. And here's the thing that's – maybe no, you did. I didn't. didn't. some of them want you to invest? I don't remember. Oh, yeah. I could have – sales loft. I could have been a – Oh, yeah. There you go. I could have been a, a president but of they, sales loft probably. They, right. Although they weren't the Flashpoint company. They should have been. Maybe this is the relevant thing. When people would come back after we had worked with them and they were quite successful in business – we would ask them, so talk to people and tell them what, what they'll get from the program. And they would invariably not start by telling us that they raise money, which we help them do, or get customers, which we help them do. They would start by saying it changed their life. 
So there was something we were doing, some way we were explaining things to them that they found really personally valuable. It changed their relationships with their wives, with their kids, and so on. Maybe that's what you were hoping well, I would what, say. Well, what I was trying to get you to say is that there, there was this place, this oh. space where you created a place for startup companies to explore and grow. And as part of this social fabric that you created, you had speakers come in. And that was how we how Let's we start met. with that. Yeah, people, somehow you showed up. Like someone said, you have to meet this so guy, I moved Paul back, Ollinger. I just moved back to Atlanta yeah. from LA where I was running the West Coast sales team for Facebook. Can I just say that one of the best things about Flashpoint was getting to meet you? Oh, thank you. So. It's well, this has enriched my life as well. So I came back. I was a bit of a unique animal having spent time at Facebook as an early employee. And then I came back to Atlanta, which which has a which has a tech scene that is more robust, thanks partly to the work you did over the past decade at Flashpoint, than it was then. But it, it wasn't a big technology city. You know, it's like San Francisco, L.A., New York, Austin. Yeah, people didn't really know how to – someone once said to me, a VC here once said to me that there's really nobody in Atlanta that knows how to raise money on an idea except perhaps me at the time. And yeah. I think that's probably right. So, yeah. So you created this space and, and you invited people to come in and talk and you invited me to come in and talk. And I gave a talk. I think I did it twice was basically like insights to the Facebook way. And this was over a period of a couple of years. And then you asked me a third time and I was like, I'll come in and talk, but I just don't feel like giving a talk about where I've been really about Facebook really is, is anything unique about me or what these people need to hear? Because I thought, why don't I tell them what the experience of actually hitting your goals in the startup world, what it feels like? Because the subtext of the technology startup scene is you're going to start a company, you're going to raise some money, you're going to go public or get bought, you're going to make a lot of money, parentheses, and then you will be happy, right? And I had done that full, and I wasn't a founder, but I was early at the company, and I had I uh, gotten a bunch of you know options and I made a lot of money and I, and I had that exit experience and I realized that my life wasn't complete. Part of my life was complete. I had checked off a okay. I hit a certain level of financial stability, thus giving myself meaningful optionality to be able to live my life how I wanted to. But it was also way more confusing than I ever anticipated. And structuring that talk was the first time I really started writing about money, happiness, and meaning, which eventually led to this podcast, which, as you know, this is episode 197 or 198, and that was five years ago. That's incredible. So the intellectual milieu, I've said milieu in the last three uh, podcasts, I'm very proud of myself for that, by the way. The environment it's that you created card. <laughs> has, the environment that you created has served me and the city of Atlanta in addition to the companies that, that went through Flashpoint as well. That's so nice of you to say. What first of all, I, I only sort of knew that. Like when I think back on the talks you gave, the talks that I remember are exactly those talks. It would you would come in and talk about how you lost. It was like a sense of losing, a sense of mission. But it, what's interesting to me is already before you came and gave those talks, I was regularly starting these cohorts of founders by telling them, "Look, here's what you're hoping will happen. You're hoping that you will work together." figure out something, you'll build something, you'll get funded, you'll make some money. And I just want to warn you that what's going to happen then is your bank account will look different. You might have more zeros. Some number changes. You'll wake up the next morning and you'll actually not feel so great because you'll feel like you don't know what to do. And you'll discover that what was really great about this was like doing it. And that this exit that you're imagining puts you in a better place in some ways puts you in a worse place. And the advice that I was often giving was I can kind of tell you something that works at that point is you take out your checkbook by the way that's at a time when people still had checkbooks <laughs> yes, do they still yes. do that so you take out your checkbook but don't forget to, re to record it in the register the check <laughs> right and <laughs> with your quill or something yes. and the, and you find a charity to give some money to because that tends to help you get back and connected with purpose because what you're missing is purpose and then you come in with this incredible talk where i remember i think it was like you had deer hunter videos <laughs> the apocalypse now apocalypse now sorry but say, that's very funny not there that's very funny but same era same, same era. era yeah right yes yeah, so the same war the apocalypse now bit was captain willard martin mm. sheen and i haven't 
thought about this oh presentation. Oh my gosh, it was Martin Remember, Sheen. It was Martin Sheen who's playing Captain Willard, and he's in Saigon waiting for a mission. And you know he he'd been home after his first whatever couple tours of duty and didn't say anything to his wife until she asked him for a divorce and you know he said yes and he came back and he's a soldier without a mission basically and he's sitting in this sweltering Saigon hotel room with the fan you know the shots of the fan circling above him and he's smoking and he's drinking whiskey you know it's probably you know room temperature 80 degree 85 degree whatever and he's sweating and then he goes through this whole chaotic thing where he hits the mirror and all that stuff and the point is is that captain willard knows who he is in the jungle but he doesn't know who he is outside of combat right and maybe that's self-aggrandizing or whatever but we don't know there's this whole phase up through adulthood where you're like i'm gonna go to college i'm gonna maybe go to graduate school then i'm gonna enter the workforce i'm gonna make a lot of money and you engage in this mission that you're on until you hit some goal and then you hit some goal and you have no idea what to do with yourself yeah right so the goal was like orienting but the goal wasn't the thing the goal doesn't actually give you much but that's the whole point of this podcast is to say you know i interview a lot of celebrities who were athletes who win all these prizes and maybe they won the super bowl and the pga championship and then inevitably the spotlight fades the glory fades and then who are you yeah and so that was sort of the question that well, it's, I was it's, it's, grappling it, with at the time. And it's complicated, too, because even if you were to get the same success the second time, it doesn't feel the same the second time. You kind of habituate it to it. I haven't had that experience. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, it's it just in general in life, you know, you get you know, your first love. It doesn't feel the same ever again, and you kind of keep searching for that. But this particular piece of it is, that at least the way I heard you saying it, the way I think we were talking about it, has to do with... When do you feel like you're in the right place? Like when do you, you kind of don't even notice yourself? Mm. You're so engaged and the world is just, or you can orient yourself and you kind of know what to do next. What happens the day that that stops happening, which is, yeah. which is a really clear thing that happens when people, for example, buy your company. Well, often the next thing that happens is you have to work for people doing things you don't want to do in order to get the rest of your money. But then mm-hmm. at the end of that, you walk out the door and you say, now what? Now like, what? I don't want to go do all that again right. to get in that same place. Even if you could do that again, you typically don't. But yeah, yeah, I think it's a really good question. Which brings us to the question of who am I? What do I do? And you might call that, you know, these crossroads where any of us as adults in whatever our circumstance, and I think it's relevant in all different kinds of circumstance. I gave my talk recently which is called Now What? Finding Meaning After You Cash Out. It's an evolved version of the talk I gave mm. eight or nine, ten years ago, whatever it was. At I'd like to see it again. It's gotten better. I pulled out the Apocalypse Now clips. Although, okay. Although I should probably put them back in. And after the talk, a woman stood up and said, what you're talking about is exactly how I felt after my kids left home. Because mm. I was a professional. I stayed home to raise my yes. kids. And then my kids leave. And then the question is, who I am? Yes. Who am I? Yes. And so whatever crossroads, whatever your personal circumstances are, all of us inevitably in adult life will find ourselves stuck. And as I read your book, The Heart of Innovation, which is really about how do companies find new products, find new, find new customer sets, but it really is a lot of the principles are relevant to how do we as human beings answer the question, who am I? What do I do? What's my value in the world? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. As you were saying that, I hadn't really thought about it so clearly. So thanks for that. It's We're stuck in different ways. Like if you're on one side of a river and you have to get to the other side, that's a kind of a stuck. But the kind of stuck you're talking about with this apocalypse now or this mission is a different kind of stuck. It's really a kind of a stuck of how do I take a stand on my life mm. um, when I don't really know which way to go or you use this phrase, who I am. Which actually, I want to. Who am I? Or who am I? Yeah, who I am? <laughs> who I am? Who I it's am? Like, it's like the Yoda version of. I did say like, who I am, but who, I, uh, who am I? More specifically, it's okay. So let's just say you can do anything. Let's just say, which is the worst, right? Because what's the paradox of choice? Yeah, terrible. Yeah, everything seems the same when you can do anything. But you know, let me. Could I just take it down a path? I I let's think actually it. part of the problem with saying who am I is maybe you can't answer that question. Maybe there's maybe that's just not actually a thing. 
like who am I? Because every people are searching for who am I as if that will tell them something. Mm. There's another way to think about that. It just actually just changes the perspective. Instead of saying who am I, you might say, how do I go about being myself? Yeah. How do I go about being myself? Because that actually is more of what you're kind of lost about. A hundred percent. And I remember even before I left Facebook, I was thinking, how do I do work that is an expression of who I am? Mm -hmm. And indeed, you know, any work you do is an, how you do any work is an expression of who you are. See, I think that may be wrong, actually. Really? Yeah. So, because it's, um, it's a kind of philosophical, but it's kind of cool. Like if you want to, people used to say, well, if you want to know what, who people are, you should watch their behavior because that's mm-hmm. all you got. You watch them and you see what they do, and that tells you who they are. Yeah. But then if I ask you why are they behaving that way, you tell me this is because who they are. Character. But then I'm saying, well, how do you know that's their character? Well, it's because I can see it in their behavior. So if so somebody cuts you, me off in traffic, they're a selfish bastard. Well, only if they cut you off, I think. <laughs> so, right. So that's a fundamental attribution error that people make. It's usually situational. But what I'm trying to say is this whole notion that a person is acting or behaving in a way because of who they are, some disposition they have, like they cut you off because they're a jerk. Mm-hmm. Maybe they cut you off because they didn't notice you were there. Maybe they cut you off because they were rushing to the hospital. It's often not because of who they are. It's because of how they're going about being themselves. And so if you keep looking for some sense of like, this is who I am, I don't think you can get there, actually. I think it, you just get tangled up. But rather, if you say, well, how do I go about being myself? Because now that starts to tie with, well, how does one go about being oneself? Like, if I think of myself as a dentist, I say, well, how does one go about having a dentist? I probably have you know, dental credentials. I probably have an office. I have patients. How do I go about having patients? So the problem that happens when you leave like a startup or, you, or some outcome goal is like, okay, I knew how I went about being myself. This is how I went about being myself to achieve that goal. But now that I have the goal, now how do I go about being myself? And that's a different way of looking at it. So give me an example of that. How do I give you an example? It's like all around you. So, well, the first example is, maybe not an example, let's just start and say, if I don't ask you, who are you? And I just say, how do you go about being yourself? You might tell me, well, one thing that you do is you get up on stage and you do comedy. Mm -hmm. And you do something else, you write. And you have conversations with nutty people like me and for some reason. And then, and then, by the way, if you're listening, this is how you go about being yourself. You listen to nutty conversations like this. Me too. So a question you might ask yourself is, okay, well, how am I going about being myself? And here's the key move to make. Most things that you are doing, you're just doing them. You don't really care. You do it this way. You do it that way. It's a little bit like if you have, ever have conversations with people and it feels like it's irrelevant, like you're talking about the weather or something. It's just irrelevant. You could talk about the weather. You could talk about you know, what you're going to do this afternoon. You're just talking. But there are some times when you do things and you're not just talking. Or you're sometimes when you do things and you're not just doing them. And the way to understand that is they actually matter. You actually care. And the way to tell is if you were to stop doing them or to change how you're doing them, that would not feel right. Mm-hmm. That's for me is one of the big things I learned doing this kind of work is pay attention to that. Ask yourself, if I didn't do this, would that be okay? Or if I changed myself, like, for example, you know, I'm I'm imagining that you're the kind of father that, like, stays in touch with their kids. You don't have to stay. I I really don't have a choice at this point. Well, actually, you do. Of course, lots of people, you know, leave. And some people find that okay, but you don't. They live above me. (laughs) <laughs> they live. They right. live in the attic. Well, you know, when I let you them can, out, you can <laughs> let them out. <laughs> you can afford another place, or Probably. you can send them off to camp or more yeah. often. Yeah, yeah. But you see, what I'm, I'm saying is, like, if you want to understand how you're going about things, this is a magic trick or a secret is: ask yourself if this thing that I'm doing, I'm just doing it, or I could actually stop myself from doing it. So, for the way I spend my days, what do I do? I spend time with my. I, I'm an active part of my kids' life. That is a proactive choice. That would not be okay to stop so this doing. Is, but this already is how you are yourself. Right. Here's how a Paul Allinger experiences themselves with their kids. So it wouldn't be okay for me to stop this podcast because clearly I can't stop, or to stop comedy, or to stop playing golf. Now, if you were to hold a gun to my head and said I had to choose one of those, you know, that would put those things in some sort of ordinal priority right yeah i don't know if that's the best way to go about it though I, <laughs> well, for, first of all i don't have a gun and i'm not gonna put it to your head <laughs> and i don't think you trust believe me anyway just uh, maybe not 
so much that as you know these are activities but then the acti- you could mistake it's like it's not about golf it can't be about golf so if you stop playing golf let's say i say to you what does it mean to stop playing golf i'd identify a behavior like uh, when someone calls you up and says do you want to go play around from now on you always say no mm-hmm. at that moment something's not going to feel right then thing is to, to chase that backwards and say okay why are you worried if you're never going to play golf again? Why does that mean anything to you? And you can chase that kind of worry chain back often to a place where there, it actually means something meaningful to you. And I don't know what it is. I mean, so maybe if you don't do that, it means there's a set of friends that you give up and you're just not willing to give up those friends. Mm-hmm. Or maybe this is the, right now the only way you get exercise. And if you gave that up, you'd be worried about not exercising. Basically the only way I get exercise. But... Okay. My point is that the way to try to understand yourself, that is to understand like how you go about being yourself is to notice something that you can't change and then ask yourself, if I changed it, that must make me feel like something is wrong. And then chase that back until it actually becomes something which feels absolutely definite for you. So an example of that would be, as you said, spending time with people outside and then whatever psychological nourishment I get from that. Yeah, or you're saying it in a positive way. It turns out it's really even better to think about it in this kind of negative space way. There's some the world price to pay for giving that. There's up. some world that you're just not going to live in. That's right. just because those things. That's just not okay. Like you're not the kind of person that would ever not have people in your life. Right. And these are all the ways that you're going about being yourself to have people in your life. So now I start to understand you better. Hey, everybody, we'll be right back with Merrick in just a minute, but I want to remind you that this week's episode is brought to you by Sidecar, makers of luxury hands-free travel accessories to help you explore and dominate the world in style. Most importantly, Sidecar is the creation of my wife, Stacy, and supporting Stacy is supporting the Crazy Money Podcast, which I appreciate greatly. It's not charity because these products are super cool. I can't tell you how proud I am of the thought She has put into creating something that not just works, but looks amazing. Ladies, Sidecar offers sleek and functional choices to effortlessly style and carry your hat when it's not on your head or your clutch when you don't need to be digging through it for your passport. Guys, fellas, what's up? Sidecar offers the perfect holiday gift for the fashionable woman or dude in your life. That's right. Crazy Money celebrates love and styles of all kinds. And these are perfect gifts So go to sidecarlove.com, or better yet, just click on the link in the show notes and use Crazy20 to get 20% off your order of $75 or more. That's right, sidecarlove.com, or click the link in the show notes. Yeah, if you're driving, it's going to be hard to do. So just make a little mental note to come back to the podcast app when you get where you're going and click on the link in the show notes. By the way, if you have that podcast app open... You just click on the name of the podcast, which this week is How to Get Unstuck with Merrick First, and that'll take you to the show notes, then scroll down and you'll see the link. Easy enough, right? Again, sidecarlove.com. Crazy 20 for 20% off your order of $75 or more. Do it for me. I love you. Thank you. Goodbye. Let's talk about one of the main principles in the book that is worth significant contemplation. And it's a quote from a guy named Frederick Beekner, who I believe was a theologist. He was. And the quote is, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. I'm going to say that again. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Let's unpack that. Yeah. So first of all, it's it's not really it doesn't need to be religious. I, I think what he's fine. Get, what he's Agreed. getting at Agreed. is here's how I've come to think about this because it's important for the work we do. When do you feel like you're not in the right place in your life? What does it mean to have a deep gladness? You can make it a little simpler. Like if you don't care, if you're doing things and you don't care, that just does not feel right. It you just don't feel right. You're just going through the motions. If someone asks you to do something. And you do it, but you don't really care. It doesn't feel right. Or you do it for the wrong reasons. Wrong reasons. Well, yeah, if you don't care. I was like, I'm not doing it I'm not doing it because I care. I'm doing it for some other reason. I'm doing it because someone else cares. I'm not doing yeah. it because I care. Which may be because somebody's paying you a lot of money. Yeah, right. Then it usually doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Somehow it just, you're not in the right place. 
And then the flip side of that is, if you care, that is, you're doing things and you care, and nobody else cares, that doesn't feel right. Meaning the world's deep hunger is not Well, the classic thing is, like, you know, people, like, do art or they write and then someone else isn't reading what they write or why do you look at me when you say that i wasn't i was looking away from you purposely (laughs) (laughs) that's so funny i'm glad you picked up on that (laughs) as i started down that path i said let's got some other examples you won't make eye contact (laughs) okay so paul is actually turning red for those of you who can't see this in the video this is purely theoretical i have at least a thousand subscribers on substack okay but continue with that thought so so say you're an artist and your art isn't appreciated or or look at you know for startup there was the place was more obvious for me was with startup people is they build a product and they're so excited to build it they care so much like not building this product for them is literally not okay how do i know Mm -hmm. they're just like they keep building it but they don't feel right why don't they feel right because when they show it to others people don't buy it or people don't use it right so that's the other side of it. It's not meeting some deep hunger. That is, on the other side, they're able to not care. So by that definition, is every bestseller proof of the world's deep hunger? Well, you know, you've got to be a little careful because let's say – because I used to have this conversation with my best friend and business partner, Matt Chanoff, who did a lot of this work with. He's co-author of a book called The Heart of Innovation. It's a good book. I think you should read it. So you should get, so, and you're still talking to me. It's a good sign. When we first working out these kind of principles, which we call this not, not principle, not doing something is not okay is a way of understanding. Like if it's okay to not do it, then you really don't care. Like not doing it is not okay. Then you do care. He said, well, does that mean we can like figure out how to make blockbuster movies or big hits? And I don't know that, I don't think that's quite right, because that's what I heard your question was. It's more, though, I can tell you that not seeing movies is somehow not okay. So people will see movies, but which movie becomes the blockbuster? That's a different question. And But popularity, I'm trying to distinguish between or confirm the similarity between the world's deep hunger and popularity. Yeah, well, popularity is like what? It's a measure of how many people are doing something. So deep hunger, think of a deep hunger as this. I'll give you a concrete example. This is one I actually use when I'm talking to people that are doing mm-hmm. startups. If you want to know whether you're just talking or whether or not there's actual indifference on the person's on the other person's part, that's mm-hmm. what you're looking for. Do they care? So we used to live in San Francisco, and we lived on the north side of Golden Gate Park. And my kids and I would walk across the park tonight, and we would go to this um, place called Gordo's. It was a taqueria. It was great. It was just like a tradition for us. And across the street from Gordo's, there was often this guy who was a homeless guy on a, you know, on some cardboard pad. So imagine, I'm, I'm imagining, I'm trying to figure out, is he really deeply hungry? Like literally hungry. So I go up to him and I say the following thing. I'm thinking to go across the street to Gordo's, buy a burrito and bring it back. And then I just stop and I like count to six in my head. So there are different things that he could say. First of all, he could ignore me. What if he said to me, um, that would be great, and I would really love it if it would have guacamole and uh, sour cream. So, okay, I think we're just talking. But let me contrast that. Suppose I walk up to him and I say, I'm thinking of going across the street to Gordo's and buying a burrito and bringing it back. Just full stop. And he says to me, that would be fantastic. That would be great. Just don't tell them it's for me, because if you tell them it's for me, they won't give it to you. Mm. So here's the difference between those two. In the first case, we're just talking. He's, you know, he could say that. He could say something else. In the second case, he was hungry. How do I know? Because he gave me something that made it possible for me to give him something back. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't know that the people at Gordo's didn't want him to get burritos, and he was simply drawn to had an interest and a deep hunger that aligned with my deep gladness, which was to feed him. Mm-hmm. That's what it feels like when you have something where you kind of are called to the right place. The world can be a pretty indifferent place. And you write something in the book where, you know, somebody can tell you they want something, but actually won't take action to get it. As you say, the world is full of things people want, but don't buy. This was really disturbing to me because I was trying to help. So a lot of this is in the context of startups, but it's just universally applied. So startups are trying to figure out like what to make that people will buy. And the sort of the zeitgeist these days has been make things that people want. 
but it doesn't seem to work. And I was trying to figure out why. And it occurred to me, well, there are a lot of things that I want that I never buy. Like what? I don't know this. You know, a fancy car, or some mm-hmm. some trip to some place, some different clothing. But it turns some out some house. But it turns out that you are actually indifferent to those things. Well, more or less. Well, what I'm saying is that there are way more things that I want that I don't buy than there are things that I buy. So if you make something for somebody that's something that they want, you're just much more likely to be making them something that they want that they don't buy. And that's not what you're looking for. You're looking for something that actually causes them to feel as though having it is, they're going to move somehow. They're going to be motivated to get it. They have to have it. Yeah, have to is hard because people don't have to do anything. In fact, mm-hmm. I don't know if you, you know, you have kids. The first thing you tell them that they have to do, they stop doing it. And what's <laughs> all, so, so I mean, that explains all the clothes on their floor. Yeah, <laughs> for example. So it was your fault for buying them clothes. But let me just tell you one thing about this is important because people say, well, then you should make it be something they need to do. But that can't be right either, because just think of all the things that you need to do that you never do. So it's not a matter of degree. That explains it's, the clothes on my floor. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, go on. No, but no, finish that thought. I think I cut you off. Well, so, you have to re- so then the puzzle for me was, like, what do you replace it with? If you're not looking around for things that people want or desire, or you're not looking around for things that people have to do, what should you be looking for if you want to kind of meet their deep hunger? And the answer is to try to see how they're stuck. Because if you can see how they're stuck and what, how the situation causes them to be stuck, when you show up and you can free them from that stuckness, they simply, you know, they, they reach for you because you can free them. That's what happened with this guy, this homeless guy. I'm offering to free him from his hunger. Mm-hmm. And he then reaches for it tempor- for the moment, right? Yep. So hunger is a momentary thing. In that moment, he's freeing me to do that by showing me how to do it in a way that will actually bring him the food. Like, I was about to go get stuck by asking Gordos for a burrito for this guy across the street, mm. and they were going to say no. So in some ways, he figured out that I needed to be freed. Mm. And so what he did freed me, and that's what you're looking for. But then there's the Steve Jobs and the Mark Zuckerbergs who invent things that people don't even know they want. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I'll tell you two things about that. One is... Wouldn't it be nice if everybody could be Steve Jobs? And by the way, in the next podcast, if you could have Steve Jobs here, I'd like to ask him that question. Mm. So it's an easy thing to imagine that there are people that are good at that. Maybe there are, but most people aren't. I mean, if you're listening to this and you're good at Steve Jobs, I'm not sure why you're listening to this podcast, but I'm trying to offer something that like can make you be successful that way. The other is, I think people aren't aware of how much stuff Steve Jobs did behind the scenes in secret to be able to dig these things out. So. Let's go back to helping people get unstuck. Another insight that you write about that caught my eye was that successful innovation must connect with the deep selves, motivations, pride, validation, and ambition of the people for whom the innovation is intended. And I think that's an important distinction because a lot of entrepreneurs or even, you know, people like me, like, hey, look, I'm writing this very I'm writing stuff that's that's witty and insightful and it's clever. But unless it really taps into the deep selves of the reader, I'm not doing anything innovative. You might be doing something innovative. So you might be doing something inventive. But Mm -hmm. for me, innovation, the difference between invention and innovation is that innovation, a successful innovation, actually lives in the world even beyond you. So you put it out there and then people reach for it, or maybe it extends and keeps going. And if you want that to happen, it has to be meaningful in the lives of the other people. So the sort of the motive force from it comes from others' motivations. So their deep hunger to be unstuck, if I want to be innovative, I have to, I have to help them satisfy that deep hunger. I think, when you, I think if you look at what happens when you are successful in innovation, it looks like this. Somehow you've figured out, whether you intentionally did it or not, but it could be accidental— You've somehow seen the situations that other people are in, in which they're stuck. Mm -hmm. And you've seen which way they're already impelled to go and what is restraining them from that. And your product or your service or the way you are with them frees them to then be themselves. That's the trick, is that to recognize how they're stuck and how to free them so that they can move in the direction that they want to go. I mean, I'm not sure it's exactly, I mean, no one was thinking this happened, but when you came to Flashpoint and you could stand up in that audience, in some ways it sounds like it freed you to express something 
that mm-hmm. otherwise was, you were already drawn to express it. Like the fact that there was a, a setting and a place and I was all for it. Then there were people who could be receptive to it. In some ways that freed you to take that step. What should we be looking for? Let's just say somebody can do again, come back to that. Hey, I'm stuck in either my career uh, or in my relationship. What are the spaces I should be looking for? I think all of those. Uh, one trick, and I think we talked about this before, if you, you're stuck, part of what it means to be stuck is you kind of notice you're stuck. So here's a suggestion I have is pay attention to what you're noticing. So what you're noticing is somehow a reflection of how you're stuck. Like if you're not noticing something, then you're kind of just operating freely. It's like you're in, in, the, in the zone. Mm-hmm. But when you notice something, the mere fact you're noticing is somehow revealing that there's something that's not quite right. And then work backwards and ask yourself, well, suppose I didn't pay attention to that. It's always just working backwards that seems to really work. So instead of saying, I wonder why I'm thinking about that, for some reason that doesn't seem to work. So I'm suggesting an actual technique. Give me an example of a situation where this can be useful. If you can't stop thinking about something. Yeah, so I don't know, it's hard for me to generate them on the fly. So maybe I'll ask, let's do it with you. So, oh, okay. goodness. Well, I mean, you could do that. We could, is sure. it too personal to do this in no, front no, no, of? No, no, absolutely. They're not in the room. They're just listening to you This is me being vulnerable. This is me being vulnerable. Or, uh, by the way, being vulnerable, this very interesting thing, and maybe I should have mentioned this, Doing this work, we discovered that it helps a tremendous amount if you hold other people in unconditional positive regard. It's a very old idea, which people... Say that, tell me what that means. It's called hold each other, hold yourself and hold other people in unconditional positive regard. That is, it's not evaluative. Like when we're doing this kind of work with our customers or we're doing this work with founders or doing this work with individuals, we say to ourselves, okay, this person in front of us, it's not about trying to figure out whether they're, they're not a good person, bad person, and not talented, smart, not dumb, smart, right? dumb. Yep. It's just hold them in unconditional positive regard. Just think to that yourself, they, like everybody else, they, they have their strengths, their weaknesses, they're limited, they're not limited. Just think of them that way and see if you can do something or be in somehow some way meaningful so that they can be more of themselves. So these kind of conversations, and by the way, do it for yourself. Like if you're feeling stuck, instead of a lot of people might say, I feel stuck and so I should set with myself for being stuck. Hold yourself in unconditional positive regard. You're probably doing as much as you possibly can do. So hold yourself in unconditional positive regard and ask yourself the question, okay, so when I think about myself being stuck, what am I noticing? Usually what people notice is what I would call outcomes. They would notice something like, well, I'm not making as much money as I mm. as I want to make, or mm-hmm. I'm... I'm not getting to be with the friends I want to be with, or I'm not driving the I car. Better, I need better friends. Better friend. <laughs> Can we solve that for <laughs> Let's them? Let's upgrade our friends. <laughs> yes, there's Match.com or something. We have an upper out policy at the Allen Trails. <laughs> it's, a, it's a Jack Welch approach where we just dump the bottom 5% of our friends on an annual basis. Oh, my gosh. The uh, year-end review is coming up, friends. So, do you um, do that for your kids? No. <laughs> it's like, there's only two it's of them. It's tough here. It's like, 5% of two kids is... is uh, so you can't have a steady rate of extrusion. <laughs> That's funny. They will leave you at some point. Unconditional positive regard. Yeah. Okay. And that allows for? Well, it it puts you in a place where you can feel curious. I would say that's another thing is that it's very helpful with this kind of work is to change yourself from trying to accomplish something, which a lot of people are driven. They think they have to accomplish something, which is fine. But if you're kind of stuck because you don't know what to accomplish, it's a mistake, I think, to try to accomplish something. Rather to say, you know what? Let me be curious. Let me take a deep breath. Let me go a little slower for a moment. Let me see mm. if I could notice more. It's a maybe more expansive and ask myself, okay, what am I noticing? Just let me pay attention to what I'm noticing. Like, why do I keep thinking that I should have a nicer car? Or why am I thinking about my neighbors? Why am I thinking that this job sucks and I'm not doing anything? So go from there. That's the step one. The next step is see if you can pay attention to not the outcome. Like you could say, I don't like my job. Okay, well, the fact you're in this job is the outcome of an incredible number of behaviors. Like, the fact you still have the job means you're showing up at work. It means you're not yelling at your boss. It means you're, you're cashing their check. There's a zillion behaviors. Then you can ask yourself, well, are there any things that I'm currently doing that are in the way of change? Or are there any things that I'm not doing, which if I don't start doing, they're in the way of change? You know, an example would be if you hate your job and you say, well, here's something that's in the way. I'm not applying for other jobs. Mm-hmm. Here's something that's in the way. I, I'm not yelling at my boss. But here's something in my way is I keep doing the work. So these are behaviors. 
which if none of these behaviors change, you're stuck. The advantage of doing that is you can then start to focus on why is it that you can't change any of those behaviors? So are there any of those behaviors that you could actually identify that you might be able to change? And then you start to get interested, well, how is it that I can't change that behavior? And that often leads you to understand yourself better. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the focus on outcomes, like how much money I make, are a distraction from more important indicators, which you could call an outcome, but it's like, how do I feel when I wake up every morning? So these are external things that you're projecting onto them something else. A story that I, I've heard from others, I'll, I'll just repeat it here. So there's a, imagine a woman walking down the street, busy street in New York City, all of a sudden a a lot of noise, a car jumps the curb, smashes into the building right in front of her. There's glass everywhere. The metal's bent right in front of her nose. And as a reaction to that, she goes up to her apartment, locks herself in, doesn't ever come out again because just the city is too dangerous. She has all her food delivered. People have to come see her. Okay, now imagine the same scenario. Woman walking down the street, car jumps the curb, loud noise, glass. She almost gets killed. And she calls up her friends and says, Let's go out and have a party because life is so fragile you can die at any minute. It's the same circumstances, but it's how people experience those circumstances. Mm-hmm. So when you say money, I think, right, you've put on top of that meaning. You know, in the meantime, you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and you're going to be healthy and maybe you can play golf and you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and see your kids. It has nothing to do with the money that's in your bank accounts, but people do project onto these, onto the world these things. So, you know, one thing to start to pay attention to is maybe that's a way that you're stuck by your interpreting how things are. And so you can ask yourself, well, suppose I, how would I change some behaviors around that? Well, that takes us to biases and blind spots. Was ist eine Umwelt? <laughs> There's a wonderful book. I think it's called An Enormous World that I hadn't heard the, the word Umwelt before. It's, uh, I guess it's German. It, 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 refers, it serves, well, anytime a W turns into a V, you got to figure it's like yeah, at yeah. least that part of the world. So the concept of an Umwelt is that people live in some, they have some world. In the book, they talk about how like a, a mouse and, a, and an elephant have the different Umwelts. The, the mouse is very sensitive to small vibrations, and the elephant is only, is, doesn't notice small vibrations, or they notice that dogs have different color sense than humans do, which is why a lot of dog toys are blue, because it really shows up a lot for... So I think in the book we talk about the umwelt, or the idea is like, can you... You're living in your own world, and it's a world of your own making. You imagine and it's very complex, and it's very intricate, but it's in your head, and other people are not living in the same world. And it's important, it's useful to start to notice that other people are living in their own world the other thing that's interesting to realize is that the world isn't actually the way you think it is, that there's some kind of waking dream that tells you that you're pretty sure is right, but it's not really necessarily right about how the world is. And that creates a blind spot for you, for all of us. So we think we know why we make decisions. We think we know why other people make decisions. And probably my guess is for most of us, most of those things aren't true. We just imagine that they're true. And so... I don't know why you brought up Umwelt at this point. But well, it's, we it talk, has to we're do talking with about biases spot. and blind spots, right? Because we're all seeing the world through our own. I mean, the mouse yeah. and an elephant, just the perspective yeah. from which they, I mean, the, the mouse is seeing it from an inch off the ground. The elephant's seeing the world from. But it's even more than that. It's like what the sensor is like, you know, little hairs on the nose that can sense mm-hmm. something for the mouse, and the elephant doesn't have anything like that. But, but, you know, you brought something up earlier that may be a really good example. It's classic in social psych. Is that a funny thing? It's like an academic talking social psych. Mm-hmm. But there's a classic thing. There's this thing called the fundamental attribution bias. Here's a way that most people are in a kind of a waking dream. People think that the reason people are doing things is because of who they are. Like it's dispositional. Like that person's a jerk. That's why they're behaving this way. And this person's not a jerk. And that's why they're behaving that way. When in fact, most of the things you're seeing are actually mostly determined by the situation people are in. So when someone cuts you off in traffic, you immediately, without being able to help yourself, have this bias and you think to yourself, what a jerk. Yeah. When in fact, if you were to go examine the situation, you might see something differently. In fact, the way to understand that is to ask yourself, think of the last time you cut somebody off in traffic. What were you thinking? And it's probably not, I'm a jerk. I'm I'm a good person. It's like, you know, I'm sorry I did it. I didn't notice them. I'm in a rush. (laughs) So, So this is, but here's what's cool about, or it's cool, it's like painful about that. It turns out, the fundamental attribution bias, when it happens, and it happens really fast, 
and it changes you to have a perception, this kind of persistent perception of the other person. So if it's your neighbor, for example, and they cut you off in traffic two blocks from your house, and you think, what a jerk, and then you notice it's, it's your neighbor, then you talk to them later and they say, I'm really sorry, I was rushing to the hospital. There's a part of you that's liable to still think of them as a jerk. <laughs> that's what it means to have a kind of a bias and a blindness, and it's very hard to overcome this. Yeah. yeah. So why is it important to break out of that, to be conscious of our own biases? So it's part of what causes you to be stuck. Like if you if you don't notice that you're not noticing, if you're thinking that the world is a certain way and the world is not actually that way, then you're incredibly constrained mm-hmm. to be stuck. And so one way to become unstuck is to notice a bias or notice a kind of cognitive illusion and see if you can find some way to work your way around it. What's the most common bias that people suffer from? Uh, by far, it's the bias of confirmation bias. We tend to... Uh, we tend to organize the world in such a way that we only notice the things that confirm for us the things that we already thought were true. Which is, which is the gasoline of social media and the structure of our media outlets throw gasoline on that bias. Um, for sure, yeah. How were you thinking about that? How was I thinking what, yeah, about what, what was an example of that? Well, no, I just mean that the structure of Facebook's whole content distribution policy is to give people what they want to see. Right. And that's fine if it's pictures of their grandbabies. Right. It's less benign when it is news that fits their confirmation bias but doesn't, doesn't help them understand the world better. Right, and that's other people trying to manipulate you by only telling you the things that you want to hear. And in fact, there's a technical term. I like how it's, what is it called? It's uh, we're B-A-D-E is how I remember it. It's bias against disconfirming evidence. Right, right. So we just emotionally... Because it makes our brains hurt. We, yeah, it makes cognitive dissonance. We just don't want to hear it. And so we just actually are biased against it. We intentionally look away from it. But it's interesting. We actually construct our world. So like with founders, they'll go up to somebody with a product idea and they'll say, hey, Paul, this thing would save you money and save you time. Wouldn't you like it? Yes. So... And they come home and they come back and they tell me about it, tell us about it. And we say, so let me ask you a question. You asked Paul whether he wanted to save time and save money with your product. And he said, yes. Okay. So just for a second, could he have said no? And you can see the founder think for a second and say, well, I guess that would be like saying he doesn't want to save time and save money. That would be pretty crazy. So mm-hmm. no, I guess he couldn't say no. So, so then I, when I was younger, I would say to somebody, well, okay, so you asked the person a question to which the only possible answer is yes. And they said yes. And I said, I can save you a really lot of time. Like if you need someone to say yes to you, just look in the mirror and say yes to yourself. That's how much information you're getting. Which, by the way, I don't say that anymore because that would piss people off. But it's true. But then here's the interesting thing that happens next because that's like disconfirming evidence. That's like I'm disconfirming what they already believe, which is they got a yes. Invariably, someone will say to me, I hear you. But this time when Paul said it, I'm really sure he meant it. (laughs) Right, right. Right. So that's how... That's how confirmation bias works. We do it without even noticing. And it causes us to be in this waking dream, which locks us in to think that we know how things are. So let's bring that back to the personal. Yeah. My, what'd you call it? Disconfirming? A bias I, against disconfirming bias. evidence. Okay, I might have an attitude that the world is against me, nobody loves me, or that if I were single, say, people of the opposite. I mean, no matter how many times I tell you that's not true for me, you still feel that way? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> What I'm saying is no. Like, I mean, I'm just trying to. I'm trying to okay, turn good. these principles into okay. into how we how we get stuck and how looking for information that confirms what we already believe will just keep us in our place. And if I were single, I might think I don't trust members of the opposite sex or members of the same sex if that's who I'm attracted or, to. Or I would think that dating sites were going to only give me people that aren't interesting. Or all women only want men with money, or all men just want sex, or whatever it is. And I will resist being open to new information that disconfirms that. Not only that, if someone were to challenge you, they'd say, but what about this news story I read where some, you know, some gold digger was taking somebody else for a lot of money? Or what about Mm -hmm. this news story where they went on a date and they, you know, something bad happened? So, yeah. yeah. So what people remember, what they notice, what comes to mind. In fact, that's really a big deal. If you just notice what comes to mind, the things that come to mind are the positive things. And therefore you mistakenly think that that's what's most likely to have happened. And so from a professional standpoint, I might think, oh, well, nobody's going to buy my cookies if I want to be a baker, if right. I want to start something. It's like, ah, oh, that's never going to work. Right. 
So how do you break out of that? Well, f- step one is to notice. Uh, so some of this stuff, you have to kind of just accept the fact that we're talking about how people are. This is just like how we are. And so if you show people how they are, and then their first thought is, well, okay, I'm going to stop being that way. That's, that's like saying you're going to stop being a person. But you can't really do that. So, But, you know, last time we met, we had coffee three weeks ago. And I made a comment that either downplayed or distracted from a moment where you were basically asking me to be real. Mm. Do you remember this? I don't. So you said... See, I'm sorry. It was probably... Right. Yeah. See, nobody pays attention to me. Uh, um, we were having this conversation, and I, and I did something that I often do, which is I sort of... I either made a negative comment or I made a, a comment that sort of took the conversation in a tangential direction. Mm-hmm. And you called me out on it. So becoming aware of those things, or this is radical candor, right? Because you hold me in unconditional positive regard. Yes. You felt safe that I could hear this and say... You know, look, I see you doing this. It's not productive. Stop doing it. <laughs> well, I probably didn't say stop doing it, but I would say you pointed here, it out. Yeah. So, and a lot of these things are. It's funny doing this work. You kind of do it one way, and then people get people get upset. And you realize, okay, I better not do it that way anymore. Mm-hmm. Or if you can find a way to change it. But so, this is hard. But I want to. I want to share it, with you. I've, like seen, a I've trick. seen your your yeah. the companies. That, I've seen the founders of the companies at Flashpoint struggle hearing that the rigor with which you believe in this system. Yes, and over time, some things have uh, have changed. So, for example, this is my own personal growth, and it's I can just share with you how hard it is to do this. Early on, when a founder would say something or a person I was working with would tell me something which sounded to me like it was clearly confirmation bias, like they would go out and they would ask a person a question to which the only possible answer was yes, and they got a yes answer and they thought they knew something. My way of interacting would be, for example, to say, no, wait a second, let's examine that. Someone pointed out to me that I probably didn't mean to be... A dick. A, a, <laughs> throwing darts, a jerk. And that when I was saying no, it might have been accurate to say no, but maybe that was actually problematic for someone to hear. So I decided to try to say it in a different way. So here's what I strategize I should do. Instead of saying no... I would say, oh, wait a minute, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way before. Could we just look at that for a little bit? So it's the same thing. I'm interrupting. But instead of saying no, I would say, hang on, it's interesting. I hadn't noticed that. It was months and months of me standing in front of a mirror, me practicing it, me recording myself to be able to get myself. <laughs> You're making fun of me, Paul. You're saying, no, I'm no enjoy- but it's just so hard to make these kinds of small changes mm-hmm. when you start to notice them. Mm-hmm. So there's that. But I want to go back to this other thing you said. Can I go back yeah, for one second? Yeah, please. So this thing you said that I mentioned something, there's another sort of mental model I have in my head. I'm sitting here listening to Paul. I say, I'm listening to you when we're out at lunch. And you're saying something. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm noticing something. And maybe Paul's noticing it. Maybe he's not noticing it. Maybe you're noticing it. You're not. Not to talk about you in the third party mm-hmm. person since you're right here. So I think to myself, well, Here's something that's, that could be a potential gift. I'm noticing something. And if Paul is not noticing it, if you're not noticing it, I could say, would you mind if I just put something on the table? I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but if I put it on the table, at least you'll know that it's in my head. And you couldn't possibly know it because it's in my head. Here's how I'm reacting to that. In order to make it possible for someone else to see it and then decide on their own whether it's something that's worthwhile or not. There's an example where this showed up in the startup world is people would like make pitches and I would notice something that they said it that way. Here's what an investor might think and then might leave the room. So I say to them, listen, I don't know, I'm not telling you what an investor is going to think. I'm just going to tell you what's going on in my head as you say that. Right. Now, if you want to do something about that, you can. If you don't want to do something about that, you don't have to. But if I don't tell you this, you don't have access to it. So I think that's probably what I was doing. That's what I probably meant to be doing when we were chatting i took it with as the the observations of a friend of a of a trusted friend who can see somebody who's whether it's a blind spot or a an unproductive habit that keeps someone from seeing themselves which is a blind spot yes and that can be really helpful to have a have someone that you can say to them listen I don't, hey, i'm not a, I'm not asking. You can talk like that on here. I've still got a tenured <laughs> position I have to worry about. So <laughs> there's, and also I don't use that. 
Anyway, so that's but fine. so that's no, fine. it's good. I, I liked hearing it. I'm not going to say it. I don't think. Yeah. So, but if you turn to someone who who you say to them, listen, I might be missing something. I, I don't want you to critique me and tell me whether I'm right or wrong. Would you just tell me what you're hearing when I say this? Mm-hmm. That can be quite helpful. Yeah. Yeah. All right. As a technique, that's interesting. This is good stuff. I enjoy this conversation. I think there's a lot here. Is there anything that we should address about helping people get unstuck that we haven't discussed? I don't know. Probably. I would say hold yourself in unconditional positive regard. Yeah, pay, good one. Pay way more attention to what are the restraints. That is, what is keeping you or others from moving forward rather than trying to force yourself to do something. That's much harder or force mm. other people to do things. That's much harder, but it's hard to notice the restraints. And the other is you should listen to Paul Ollinger's podcast because it's great. I, I, I love and our, I love our conversation. And subscribe to the Substack. And, which, you probably, and you could tell them to buy the book, which is The Heart of Innovation. If you can't not read it, it has to be read. There you go. It's yeah. not okay to not read Money and the Meaning of Life, Paul Ollinger's Substack. There you go. Merrick, yeah, it's really fun. Thank you, Merrick Paul. Merrick First, the book is called The Heart of Innovation, a field guide for navigating to authentic demand. Real quick, who's the book for? Well, if you're listening and it's a draw to you, it's it's for you. The people who we wrote with it, them in mind are people who are doing innovation in large companies, people who are trying to support other people to do innovation, individuals who are trying to make a difference in their life to try to find their way to a place where their deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger. Uh, investors, it's an important book for investors, actually, as you try to evaluate whether things you're investing in are um, liable to actually be drawn into the world. A lot of startups build products for which there is no authentic demand. And if you're working with people for whom authentic demand is meaningful, the book has a lot of suggestions for how to practically go after it. It's not just about saying you should have it. That's an after-the-fact thing. Like, suppose you don't have it. How do you go about getting it? That's who the book is for. Do you have a website? We do. It's called The Heart of Innovation Book. Com. All right. We'll put that in the show notes and we'll leave with one thought. The place God calls you or the universe, however you want to think about it, is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Merrick first. Thank you very much. Uh, my wish for you all is that you face less indifference in the world. Thanks, Paul. All right. Well, it's a pleasure to host Merrick on the show. He's been a good friend and a mentor for a lot of years. And it's funny when preparing for this interview and thinking about it, it didn't even occur to me until I really started thinking about our history, how important he had been in, in helping me think about how to move forward after I had left Facebook and was looking for a way to contribute in a way that could help the people at Flashpoint in a way that was sort of unexpected. And I was just like, what could I say to them that that other people would feel maybe awkward about speaking about or that it was not good manners or whatever, but something that I felt they needed to hear. And as I think about the two most important things that we talked about today or that I took away from his book, it resonates because as he says in the book, and I quoted this earlier, successful innovation must connect with the deep selves, motivations, pride, validation, and the ambition of the people for whom that innovation is intended. And innovation doesn't have to be a product. It can be a message. It can be some thoughts that might help the other person become who they are or be the best version of themselves. I never would have thought about it in those terms, but as I think about, well, how can I continue to do that and how can each of us continue to get unstuck, it's really less thinking about ourselves, but thinking about ourselves in the ways that we can serve other people. And this is the other element that I think is worth meditation. And that's a quote from the theologist Frederick Buechner. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Again, as Merrick mentioned and as I agreed, this doesn't have to be a religious thing. Whether it is your spirit, the universe, or just your purpose in life, is to find where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. In the case of a restaurant, that could be quite literal. People's hunger shows up in a place where it's going to be satisfied in a way that the 
proprietor or the chef is going to do it in a style that really fits the uniqueness of the hunger of that customer. There are certain restaurants that maybe were very well regarded, but you don't think are that great because for whatever reason, it doesn't connect with your deep self, your motivation or your validation. But others that may be less appreciated do it in a way that really suits the way you see the world or see yourself in the world. And so you prefer that product. And that's a very on-the-nose example, but the things you read, the products you consume, the clothes you wear are all an expression of your validation and who you are and your deep hunger. And so when you're stuck, focus on those two things. What's your deep gladness and how does it satisfy the world's hunger? I hope you got a lot out of this conversation. I re-listened to it today before I did the introduction and this outro. And like so many times, I'll forget kind of the details of the conversation just because I really enjoy being in the moment. But I think the things that we talked about are really important. And I hope you saw that too. We'll be back next week with author Gary Cernovist, whose new book is called The Counting House. It's hilarious. It's a tale. It's a fictional tale. We think it's fictional anyway. It's it's written in the form of a novel. It's the tale of a university endowment manager who has some ups and downs in his investment track record. And it's all about uh, him coming to terms with his identity. And it's really very, very funny. Anyway, look forward to sharing that with you next week. Until then, Mike Carano, make me sound smart. <laughs>